Hello and welcome. I am Joel McReynolds, and you are listening to my preaching podcast. I have the opportunity to share from God's Word and want to share God's message not only with the congregation of the churches I preach in, but also with you. You can find out more information about me on my website, joelmcreynolds.com, where you can also check out my blog. For now, I hope God speaks to you through today's message. restoration and renewal and you know we just sang about that God gives us second chance as people created by him I think we love a good redemption story arc if you look at modern storytelling examples like this abound Marvel Studios has the Loki series Loki was originally the villain, the Asgardian god of mischief that brought the Avengers together. But he changes into a time-traveling hero. Now, it's been several years since the Harry Potter series came out, but everyone loved the redemption arc that you saw for Professor Snape, who was originally antagonistic, and for Draco Malfoy. Maybe you're more familiar with Tolkien. His stories of Middle-earth were filled with redemptive themes. Even the very worst of monsters had within them, in his opinion, the potential to turn back to good. The love of a redemptive story arc speaks to anyone who has ever wished for a do-over or has been granted one. We relate to characters when they fall and then they turn and they grow. People who make mistakes and then learn from them. We all need second chances. Well, so did Israel. Let's jump into Joshua chapter 8, and let's just talk about what happened there. Joshua 8, let's begin in verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you, and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king, just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. Now the nation of Israel needed a second chance. God had given them victory at Jericho, but we saw last week because of a secret sin... In the camp, they experienced a humiliating defeat at the small fort of Ai. After discovering Achan's secret sin, they expunged it from the camp by destroying him and his family. And now Israel was ready for another chance at taking Ai. And God offers them that chance. First, he gave them a word of encouragement. You notice there in verse 1, the first thing he says, Do not fear. And do not be dismayed. The gods of Egypt, from where they came, the gods of Canaan and the lands around them, they typically vented their anger towards the people, and they nursed grudges. But the true God prefers to show mercy and grace. 
He doesn't hold grudges. Since Israel had repented of their sin and had removed it from their midst, he forgave them. In Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, it says this. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. God treads sin into the ground until it's no longer recognizable. He throws it to the bottom of the sea where it cannot return. Scripture tells us that God blots out our sin. Once it's been dealt with, he does not see it anymore. And that was great news for Israel. They had a fresh start. They had a second chance after the whole situation with Achan. But for us, we don't need to be dismayed. We don't need to be uh, fearful because of our sin. No matter what mistakes you've made, God forgives and he receives the repentant. Our, our sin has already been dealt with. By Jesus on, the, on Calvary's cross. Now, you know, many Baptists don't sing the third verse of hymns, but I'm thankful to hear we do. Thank you, Brother Eddie, for that. But if you look at the third verse of It Is Well With My Soul, it says this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Indeed, God is faithful and just to forgive us because his son paid the penalty for us. And through faith in Jesus, we receive a second chance. God gives us second chances. Now, Israel's second chance was evidenced by God's command. He said, go take the city of Ai. He promised Israel that victory was certain if they followed his instructions. If Israel did what God told them, Ai would fall just like Jericho fell. Also notice that one of the subcommands that God gave to the people. So they would not only defeat Ai, but they would get to take the spoils. They get to plunder the city. They would get to claim the spoils of victory. And you think, if Achan had only waited, he forgot that God is generous to his people. So after, at Jericho, he satisfied the first fruits. He got everything that he, God got everything from Jericho. But Ai and the falling battles generally follow the uh, common ancient Near Eastern practices when it came to warfare. The soldiers, the conquering army, would raid the city, they would conquer, and then they would divide the booty among themselves. But Achan had run ahead, and he had robbed God. And, you know, when we run ahead of God, we usually rob ourselves of a blessing, and we hurt others just like Achan did. We must remember God's generous nature. The other subcommand that we find in this verse really frames much of the rest of the chapter. He sets the strategy 
for Israel to take Ai. He says, you're going to have an ambush. Now, due to time's sake, I'm not going to read all of this middle section, verses 3 through 29, but I encourage you, maybe this afternoon, when you go home, go read those verses together. But let me sum it up for you for right now. The strategy for taking Ai was quite different from Jericho. You can see the chart that I made up here. Jericho starts with an overt display. They're walking around the city. They're doing so in the daytime. All the army is together as they march around the city. And what does it take to make the walls fall? God's mighty miracle. AI is going to be a little bit different. Instead of doing it overtly, it's a covert op. They're going to do it at nighttime. The troops are going to be divided, and we'll talk more about the strategy behind that in a minute. But what is going to give them the victory is not God's miraculous great big miracle, but for simple obedience to a common military tactic, military maneuver. You know, God varies his methods. He doesn't want us to depend on our personal experiences. He wants us to trust his divine presence. He wants us to trust his divine promises. We need to seek God for understanding rather than relying on our past victories. The, the phrase, we've always done it this way, that's not a phrase the church should utter. It's not a phrase the church should live by. Because what happens when you face on experience over and over, you do the same thing over and over, and you get into a rut? What happens to a rut? Turns into a grave. When we start to change things, and I know there's been some small changes, but there might be some other changes coming around the bend. And if you come up to me and you say, well, Brother Joel, I don't know about this. We've never done it this way. Here's my response. Just be prepared. It's going to be the same thing every time. Good. That means we'll do something different. We'll get some different results. Maybe we'll make some progress. But that doesn't mean that Israel went in without a strategy. The work of God often requires a strategy. God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. He doesn't just say, yeah, go out there and do what you want to do, and you'll get victory. He says, do what I tell you to do, and you'll have victory. So there's a strategy required. You're probably familiar with the common phrase, if you fail to plan, then you plan to fail. And that's true for ministry, too. We must seek God's mind in our planning. He gives us a strategy, but we must allow him to take the lead. So Joshua and the Israelites, they followed God's strategy. He would organize a victory for Israel from their previous defeat. You see, the, the people of Ai, they were confident. The people of Israel had come against them, had attacked them. And when they did... They were driven back because they only brought 3,000 people. The city of Ai drove them out. 30, what was it, 36 people died? They thought Israel is weak, so we're going to conquer them. So here's God's strategy. We're going to ambush them. So he divides the troops into three divisions. One is a division of about 5,000. There's another division of about 5,000. And then the rest of the 30,000 comprise the rest. 
So Joshua was to station 5,000 soldiers to the north of Ai. They're coming from the west, or coming from the east toward the west from Jericho. You can see this up here. You, these, by the way, this is a handwritten, hand-drawn, so uh, you can see how bad my handwriting is there. But coming from Gilgal, Jericho, over to the west to Ai. And then you can see, I, I put Bethel up there because they're going to come into play here in a minute. But they're moving from Jericho to Ai. They're going to loop around. Joshua's troop is going to loop around and come from the north with 5,000 soldiers. And they're going to have a frontal assault. Well, here's what happens. He goes around at night and sets his 5,000, and they storm the front gates. Ai thinks, these guys are idiots. They're trying us again. So they come, attack the front gates, and then Ai's soldiers leave out the front gates with the king to go to get, get those 5,000 men. Now, what they're not aware of is that Joshua, by God's strategy, has placed 15,000 soldiers on either side. So when they run out, immediately they've got a troop of 15,000 here, a troop of 15,000 here, and a troop of 5,000 up here. There's still another 5,000 soldiers missing. They went around to the west side. And so there's a small side gate going into the city. When all those soldiers leave and go out into to, to take those 5,000 Israelite soldiers, those other 5,000, they raid the city of Ai. So I marked it with an R for raiding. So Joshua's at the top. The raiding party's coming into Ai. And then they set fire to the city. When Joshua sees the flames and smoke coming up, he goes, okay, they're in there. And he raises his spear up. And that's the, the sign for all those 30,000 on the side, the main troops, to come in and take those soldiers from Ai. So now there's 5,000 soldiers in front of them. There's 15 on either side of them. And guess what? That 5,000 that was in the city is coming out behind them. They're surrounded. And they are destroyed, quickly defeated. Now, one thing I didn't mention was that not only was the city of Ai there, but the warriors from the nearby city of Bethel joined with Ai in attacking them. So a lot of the soldiers from Bethel also perished in this battle, and that's going to come back to us in chapter 12 when we see more about them. But the, the army is defeated, the king is defeated, the city is, uh, the whole population is slaughtered, and all that's left is to take the spoils. There's one thing, the, the king was taken alive. I want us to look at something there. Let's hone in on verse number 29 for a moment. It says, He hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening, and at sunset Joshua gave command, and they took his body down from the tree, and they threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a great heap of stones that stands to this day. So, the, the king of Ai... His army's defeated, his people are killed, his cattle and his riches have been plundered, 
and the structures of the city are in ruin. Now, let's look back at, uh, at verse number one here for just a moment. What did God say? Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. So what God told them is exactly what happened. All that's left of Ai at this point is his king, its leader, but not for long. He's hanged on a tree. Why is he hanged on a tree? Because he was under God's curse. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 22 and 23 say this. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. Notice this, par this parenthetical statement. For he who is hanged is a curse of God. And then he says, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, he's not cursed because he's hanging on a tree. He's hanging on a tree because he's accursed. As the local representative of the Canaanite's power, he had broken God's law. He had done things that were detestable in God's sight. And he may not have personally done those. But remember the corporate aspect that we talked about last week. There's a corporate identity. So he's representing these people who were doing detestable things before the Lord. And as one of their leaders, he is culpable. Now many more of Canaanites, the Canaanite leaders will be hung just like Ai's king. And it's for the same reason. And it's gruesome to us, especially our modern sensibilities. We'll look at this and think, that is horrible. And let me tell you, it's meant to be. It's meant to point to what we all deserve for our sin. We deserve to be hung on a tree, paraded around and humiliated because of our sin. Because we are all cursed because of it. But Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 3 and verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law because he's become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's all of us, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. While Jesus was innocent, he took the curse that was intended for me and for you. And if you have faith in him, in that place of the punishment and the curse that we had, he gives us his righteousness. It's credited to our account. What a glorious Savior. Well, as we saw, the law required that the body would not be kept up after sunset. So they removed the king's body at sunset, took it down, and they created a fourth memorial. Now suddenly all these heaps of stones are popping up all over Canaan. And these are like bookmarks in Israel's history. And each one of them tell us something about God. We have the stones that we first talked about at Gilgal. Reminding the people of God's power over nature. He parted the waters for them to cross over Jordan. The stones of Jericho that remind of God's power over the walls. 
And last week we saw the stones of Achor that remind us of God's wrath toward sin. And now after the victory of Ai, Israel's faith and their courage is renewed. The, grace, the, the uh, disgrace and the defeat of Achan's sin has been removed. It is erased. Israel faced the same city, but they had a different strategy and they had a different outcome. And the memorial of Ai reminds us that God restores his people. Now, what does a victorious army normally do? They usually do a couple of things. One, they celebrate the victory, and then they strategize about their next move. And these final verses, they kind of feel a little bit jarring to us as we just read through the chapter. They don't really feel like they fit. But let me tell you, this is a proper response to the events that have taken place over Joshua 7 and Joshua 8. Let's read beginning in verse 30 and through the end of the chapter, verse 35. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stone on which no man had wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel, with their elders and officers and their judges, were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priest, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger, as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then afterward, he, that is Joshua, read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, but the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. So Joshua led the people about 30 miles north of Ai to Shechem, between mountains Ebal and Gerizim. Now, this is a special historical place. It's where Abraham first received the promise of the land. And it's where his grandson Jacob returned safely from a foreign land, and he dwelled there for some time. So Joshua brought Israel to this historic location to participate in a special worship service. And this worship service would fulfill the instructions that Moses gave to them back in Deuteronomy chapter 27. So Joshua built an altar according to the instructions that had been given through Moses, and they had burnt offerings. Now burnt offerings were burned totally as a token of the nation's total commitment to the Lord. So the whole sacrifice was burned up and it, the smell was said to be pleasing to the Lord. Then they had a peace offering or fellowship offering. These were an expression of gratitude to the Lord and it involved them sharing a meal between the priest and the people. And it was a, a depiction of a fellowship, a relationship between God and the people, the offer. 
It was also common in the ancient Near East for kings and leaders to build up some stones and they would plaster these uh, and then they would mark in the plaster their great military achievements. And we still have some of these records that have lasted for generations. Well, jo uh, Joshua did according to the law of Moses. He took some stones and put them on each mountain. He covered them with lime and then he wrote the law on them. Because this was the secret to Israel's success. It was not military achievement. It was obedience to God's law. If God was for them, nothing could stand against them. But if God was against them, nothing they did would prosper. These two mountains were given special significance Mount Ebal was designed or designated as the mountain of curses. And Gerizim was the mountain of blessings. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, the tribes were assigned locations between Ebal and Gerizim, and they would face the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. And I want to point out a key word that's in here. All. We see it. Five times in three verses. The point is the participants in this worship service included everybody. All the people of God must give all obedience to all the word of God. From the leaders to the citizens to the resident aliens that lived among them, from the men to the women and the children, everybody, regardless of their gender, regardless of their age, regardless of their social standing, were part of this event. And the focus of this service was on the Word of God, the, the written book of the law. So when the curses of evil were written, or were read aloud one by one, the tribes that were stationed with evil at their back would shout loudly together after each one, Amen. And then the tribes that were stationed with Gerizim at their back, when the blessings were read one by one, after each one, they would shout loudly together, Amen. So what is the point? Why is this happening? Why is it here at the end of chapter 8 after the defeat of Ai? The meaning of this worship service was to remind the people of the importance of covenant obedience. More important than their military victory was their relationship with God. Worship of God is greater than working for God. You can't draw from an empty well. Before you can serve, you need to be refilled. This was a moment for covenant renewal for Israel. And these were fairly common in Israel's religious life. If you, if you read over the history, they do these kind of things over and over. And I think it makes a point for us. That point is that God's people should renew their commitment to his covenant. See, life is full of changes. And those changes don't change the, the commitment or the covenant that we made with God. Once we've accepted him, we've committed our lives to him, that is it. You've made the commitment. But what happens? Life changes come along. 
Maybe my, for my own instance, I, uh, I came to faith as a, as a young child. Maybe some of you also, maybe some of you came as teenagers, maybe some of you came in adulthood. But let's think on terms of a child or a teenager. What happens between being a child and a teenager and being a young adult? You graduate high school, maybe seek higher education, have job requirements, have family obligations, and other new life experiences. And each one of those require us to think differently. And they, they don't change the commitment that we've made, but they have an effect on our lives, and so they affect our priorities. Each stage in our lives, I think, tests our faith and tests our commitment that we made to the Lord. I think Israel's ceremony suggests that regular periods of covenant renewal would benefit all of us, whether individual or the corporate local body of Christ. I think we need to have time dedicated toward renewal. Now, the more liturgical churches are doing something right now that you may be familiar with, they're observing Lent. Lent is traditionally a time of fasting and preparation for 40 days leading up to Easter. And uh, some of you are already aware of this. As Baptists, we, we don't observe Lent normally. Some do. But for the 40 days leading up to Easter, I'm doing a daily devotional online that you can, it's available on the podcast or you can go to my website and look it up there. That's going to cover the time of Lent. So I encourage you, take, take advantage of that. But I think that there's more that we as a church should consider doing for a time of renewal. Now most of you have probably heard about the Asbury Revival that's taking place right now. It's been going on for some time now. Now I don't think we can schedule the Spirit's moving. I'm not saying that. We have to rely on the Spirit of God to do that. But I think we can set time aside for prayer and for renewal. And this is an old-fashioned idea, right? Revival services. Many churches would have revival services each year. And I am suggesting that we should consider holding, at least for this year, a revival service. And potentially make that an annual time where it's not... Focus on us going out and trying to get people to come and, and we want to see our numbers grow, anything like that. And that would be great if that happens. But what it should be is a time of renewal and revival for us as we renew our commitment to the Lord. And while that would be great, the, the, the reality is that you can renew your commitment to God at any time. So maybe even today, God's calling you, saying you need to renew your commitment. Life changes have gotten in your way. Your commitment to me has waned, but your commitment is still there, and you need to renew it. Maybe he's calling you to renew that commitment to him today, to spend time as we have a time of response here in just a moment, to reflect on your relationship with him and how things maybe have changed in your life.
and respond to him in worship. After Israel repented of their sin, God gave them a second chance. He restored them as a victorious people. And their response was by renewing the covenant commitment they had made. We can do the same today. You can do the same today. But maybe you're here today and you can't renew a commitment to the Lord because you've never made one. Maybe you're still standing in the shadow of Mount Evil, the curses that Moses read or Joshua read are still there, the curses of sin. But listen, Jesus took the curse of Mount Evil so that you can live in the blessings of Mount Gerashim. He suffered, he died, and he rose again so that you can live in his righteousness. And we now all stand between two different mountains, Mount Calvary. Where Jesus died for sin and Mount Olivet, where he will return in power and glory. Scripture tells us now, today is the day of salvation. So as we have a time of response, won't you respond to his word today? I ask that you stand with me. And if you need to make a commitment to him for the first time, I would love to speak with you about how to do that. But if you're here today and you've already made that commitment, take a time. Reflect on it. Renew it. Maybe come down and, and kneel here at the, we don't really have an altar, but kneel down here at the steps and face towards the baptistry and be reminded of the commitment you made when you went through those waters. Maybe come down with a friend and, or your spouse and pray together. Maybe part of your renewal is that you're here today and maybe you've been attending for a while, but you're not a member of the church. Maybe today God's calling you. Renew your commitment by committing to this local body of believers. Or maybe your renewal involves a call to service, whether here in this church or somewhere outside of these walls. Whatever God's calling you to do today, as we have a time of response, as we sing, why don't you respond in whatever way God is leading you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Please subscribe to catch the latest episodes and find me on YouTube. Until next time, go out and pierce the darkness with the light of his word.